Ladies and gents, this is the moment that you've waited for. <laughs> Been searching in the dark, your sweat soaking through the floor, and buried in your bones there's an ache you can't ignore, taking all your breath, stealing your mind, and all that was real is left behind. This is the greatest show. <laughs> and so P.T. Barnum starts The Greatest Showman. And it's a film that dazzles with lights and brightness. A film that invites us to forget what's real and to enter into something that will distract us, entertain us. A performance that will amaze us. My big point this afternoon is that Jesus is not the greatest showman. Jesus is not the greatest showman. And I want us to look at this story in John's Gospel, and I want us to discover that there is something better there here than simply a show. You see, all too often, we settle for a show. We settle for a performance, because yes, there is, buried deep in our bones, an ache, There is something within us that cries out for something. But I want to suggest it's not a show. You see, a show is about what is not real, but what amazes us. It takes us out of ourselves. It distracts and entertains and amuses. But in Jesus, you don't find a show, you find glory. In Jesus, you find something so much greater, something so much deeper and better and more profound than you will ever find in any show. So this afternoon, I want us to look at this story and I want us to let Jesus not to dazzle us with his performance, but to reveal to us his glory. Do you see the difference? I think it's crystal clear just reading the story that Jesus is not a showman. Did you listen as Johnny read it? Did you notice what happened in the story? Who at the wedding knows that Jesus turned water into wine? Only the servants and Jesus' closest friends. Most of the guests at the wedding are in the presence of an extraordinary miracle and they don't even know it's happened. That's not what showmen do. Showmen go, gather around, there's a crisis. Showmen love crisis. Let me throw on a doctor, that sort of thing. Showmen love a crisis. And if Jesus was a showman, he'd have said, this is my moment. Gather around, people. I'm about to perform for you a miracle that you have never seen before in all your life. Actually, what Jesus does is quietly, unperceptibly, reveal his glory. (laughs) And we need to understand why. Why is it that Jesus is not a showman? And verse 11 is the key verse for this story. So we're going to do the story. We'll look at the details in a second. But we're going to look at verse 11 to understand what this story is all about It's not difficult, verse 11. It's got three little bits in it. Just going to quickly show you this so we know what we're looking for when we then come to the story. 
So look at verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is not a show. This is a sign. A show and a sign are very different things. A show points to itself. Look at me, look at me, look at me. A sign says, no, look over there, look over there. That's what signs do, right? If you go up to the the sign for Chessington World of Adventures and sit at the sign, and go, look, it's the sign. The sign is going, don't look at me, go over there. All the fun's happening over there. That's what signs do. They point somewhere. So we've got to ask the question, what is this sign pointing to that Jesus did? See, it's not enough for us to read this story and go, oh, wow, look at that. Jesus can turn water into wine. Cool trick. Perhaps we'll invite him to a party. Not enough for us to simply be impressed by the miracle. You've got to follow where it's pointing. It's a sign. And you notice this is the first sign, which makes you think that maybe John's got more coming. And he has. There's a second sign. And a third. In fact, there's seven of them. John carefully constructs his gospel to give us seven signs, all pointing the same way. And so John, from John chapter 2 to 11, is a chunk of John's gospel, which includes seven signs. And this is the first. So it's a sign that's pointing somewhere. Not a show to draw attention to self, but a sign that points. Okay, what's it pointing to? Let's look at the second bit. Through which he revealed his glory. The sign is pointing to the glory. The sign points us to Jesus' glory. Now, glory is a big word. We've been thinking about that already this afternoon. Glory, when you look at it in the Bible, is a God word. It's a word that is associated closely with God himself. Like when God shows himself, when God does anything, or when God reveals himself, it's glory. When you see God, it's glory. So when God does something powerful, like rescue his people out of Egypt, he shows his glory. Or the heavens declare the glory of God. A beautiful sunset, a mountain, all that Johnny was talking about earlier. Glory, glory, glory. This is God on display. And God is very jealous for his own glory. Not because he's selfish and arrogant, but because he is utterly worthy. And he says that he will not share his glory with another. There is no one like God. No one who comes alongside God and says, hey, why don't we share the stage? No. God alone is worthy of glory. And glory is something weighty and heavy and rich. It's different to a show, right? 
A show is superficial. It makes you feel good for a little while. It's something nice and it, it, it distracts you and it entertains you, but it doesn't satisfy you. Which is why when you go and see uh, an incredible sunset, there is something, there's something in that moment. Because you're getting a little taste of glory. And the ache that we have in our bones, deep inside, buried in our bones, is an ache for that glory. The glory of God seen in the skies, the glory of God put on display. But this isn't the glory of God, is it? Jesus reveals his glory. Well, who on earth does he think he is? Who does he think he is to go around revealing glory? Only God. Only God. Only God gets glory. And that's what we've seen already in John's Gospel, if you've been here. The God who made creation has come, has stepped into this world, and Jesus is that God. He is the Son of God, the one who has all glory. And what he's doing in these signs, the first of them is this, is he's putting his glory on display. So we've got to ask the question, when we read the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine, what does this sign reveal about the glory of God? That's what it's for. And the ultimate purpose then, as the sign reveals the glory, is what is the response at the end of verse 11? His disciples believed in him. At the end of a show, what do you do? Give it a little clap. Perhaps if it was good, you stand up. You give a woo, you do a little woo if you're really excited. At the end of a show, you cheer. At the end of a show, you're excited. At the end of a show, you're drawn in. And as you walk home, you go, that was good. Wasn't that good? That was lovely. I really enjoyed that. It doesn't change you. The next day you wake up and you're just the same. Might have made you think a bit. But when you encounter glory, something profoundly deep happens. When you encounter glory, the glory of God in Christ, and you respond by believing in him, your life is never the same again. The trouble with that phrase, believe in him, is it's a phrase that we, we sort of talk about, like, do you believe in the tooth fairy, and do you believe in Father Christmas, and do you believe in Jesus? It sounds a little bit naff, doesn't it? I believe in Jesus. That's nice. I believe in unicorns. Right? That sort of feel. We've got to get away from that. (laughs) To believe in Jesus is to say, you are God. You are the Son of God. You're the one who's worthy of glory. You're the one who I'm going to center my whole life around. Only you can bring light into my darkness. Only you can bring hope into my despair. Only you can bring freedom into my slavery. Jesus, only you can do that. I'm with you. 
I need you. I trust you. I place all of it in you. To believe in Jesus is utterly radical. It is not simply to say, oh, that's right, yes, I believe in a man called Jesus, or I know about Jesus, or I can answer questions about Jesus. It is that you've placed all of your weight on him. To the extent where, if Jesus were not true, your life would be nothing. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. But if Jesus were to prove to be false, your life would be nothing. That's scary. That's why he reveals his glory. So that you know he's strong enough for you to stand on. That's what this water into wine miracle is for. Do you get it? It's a sign that points the glory so that you would lean your whole life on this man. Trust everything to him. Your money, your your, your, um, relationships, your direction, your ambitions, your career, everything goes on Christ. You lean everything on him. That's where we're heading. At which point we'd say, okay, well, I probably need some evidence to do that because... Before I'm going to trust this Jesus like that, I need to know. Good news, John has got seven signs and then a whole heap more. And we're going to do the first one today. We're going to look at this first one and it's going to challenge us. Now let me just say, I don't think there's anything wrong with shows. I don't think there's anything wrong with enjoying going and seeing a show and being distracted and being entertained and applauding and saying, wow, what beautiful music. This is great. Nothing wrong with shows. Unless they distract you from glory. Unless we use entertainment, unless we use our TV and Netflix and all the rest of that stuff that distracts and entertains and fills our hearts, unless that would keep us from glory. This afternoon, let's be hungry for glory. Let's get into the, into the story. I just want to show you three things. I want to show you how this sign points to three greater things about Jesus. Um, right, you ready? Let's go. Everyone feeling, I feel like it's a little bit flat this afternoon. Let's go for this. Let's go, come on. Might just be me. Right, chapter two, verse one. First thing we're going to see is there is a greater hour. A greater hour. That's what this sign is pointing us to. A greater hour. Follow the sign. Follow the sign to the glory and then believe that glory. Here we go. On the third day, the third day is always good in the Bible. Good things happen on the third day. New things happen on the third day. A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. I love it. Just as an aside, you see, Jesus, he doesn't sit in a cave on his own as a kind of monk who's got nothing else to do. He's part of society. They invite the eternal Son of God to come to their wedding. 
There was a stupid story on the BBC this week about Rod Stewart turning up at someone's wedding. Rod Stewart? Who cares? Son of God came to their wedding. Didn't sing for them, but did something better. So here is Jesus at a wedding. And then verse 3, the wine is gone. Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. (laughs) It's so tantalizing. How did she say it? Was she just casually passing the time? Oh, they've got no more wine. Seems unlikely because Jesus reads into what she says as more than that. Mother. (laughs) It's fairly clear, I think, from Jesus' response that she's expecting Jesus to do something about it. Now, I don't know what she's expecting him to do, I don't think it's the case that Jesus has been performing miracles since a child. You know, every morning at breakfast, he makes an egg. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Jesus. (laughs) Run out of milk. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus, you're great. They've got no more wine. Don't worry. I don't think that's what's going on. It seems more likely to me that Jesus' mother has... Sort of, it seems very likely that Joseph, Jesus' adopted father, has died. Jesus is probably the man of the house by now. And that she's probably just appealing to him to say, they've got no more wine. Is there something that you can do? And Jesus' response, let's face it, seems really rude. It seems really odd. Particularly when you consider that he's going to make the wine. So why go through all this kind of thing with his mum? Where he says to her, woman, now, (laughs) that is, don't, that, that, don't do that. I don't think it's as disrespectful as it would be for for me to phone my mum and go, woman! (laughs) It's not as disrespectful as that, but there is a distance here. There is a perfectly good word for Jesus to use if he wanted to call her mother. And yet at this point, Jesus is putting a distance between himself and his mother. And then he says, why do you involve me? What what has it got to do with you and me? Why are you trying to pull me into this? Interestingly, that phrase, why do you involve me, is used five other times in the New Testament. And every other time it's on the mouth of demons speaking to Jesus. Basically saying, why are you trying to get involved in our territory? Why are you trying to get control of us? And so Jesus at this point is, I think, gently and respectfully rebuking his mother to say... Why are you trying to tell me what to do? My hour has not yet come. Do you see it? My hour has not yet come. 
You see, for Mary, Jesus' mother, there was no wine. That was the opportunity. That was the problem. That was the situation. Jesus, could you help me? Jesus has got a much bigger thing on his mind. The lack of wine is not his primary concern in coming to earth. He did not come to earth in order to fix the lack of wine problem. He came to earth with a bigger mission, a bigger plan, an hour that was coming. And so he says, my hour has not yet come. And that hour becomes an important theme in John's Gospel. Just turn over to chapter 6. Sorry, chapter 7, verse 6. Chapter 7 and verse 6. Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The word cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. Do you see? So Jesus says again, my time has not come. It's not now. It's not time for me now to go to the festival. It's not time for me now to go up to um, Jerusalem. We'll go to chapter 8, verse 20. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. Do you not sense there's this kind of something's coming? There is an hour coming, but we're not sure what it is. Until you get to chapter 12 and verse 23. But let's go, up, let's go from verse um, 20. Just listen to this. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was with, uh, from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. What a great request. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? The Son of Man's going to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in the very next verse, he says that that means he's going to die. The hour in John's Gospel, the time, the moment that Jesus came for was the moment when he would be lifted up on a cross. If you go just on a couple of chapters to chapter 17, verse 1, This is the night before he died, and he's praying to God. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. So he says to Mary, my hour is not now. You see, the danger is that he's going to get trapped into this place of being, he goes around fixing people's problems, fixing people's difficulties. Ping, 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 that's fine, I'll sort you all out. Jesus says no, he's absolutely clear that his agenda is not set by humanity. It's not even set by his mum, his closest family. His mother does not set his agenda. Only his heavenly father sets his agenda. And Jesus says, I have an hour. There is a work that I must do. And it is to go to a cross and to die. 
And it's at the cross when Jesus is lifted up and nails are driven through his hands and his feet that the glory of God is put on display. As you see how much God loves this world. That's his hour of glory. And so why does, why does Jesus have this back and forth with his mother at the wedding in Cana? Because he wants to be crystal clear that he is following an agenda set by his Father in heaven. You know, it's so easy for us to want Jesus to fit into our agenda, for Jesus to fix our problems. Jesus, I've got no more wine. Jesus, my car's broken down. Jesus, I need this. Jesus, I can do with this. Jesus, help me with this. And Jesus says, no. That's not what I'm about. I'm about this great work of saving the world through dying on the cross. Does that mean he doesn't care about our stuff? Did he give wine? Yes. But it's not his agenda. It's not his big thing. He has a bigger goal for you than that your party has plenty of wine. He has a bigger ambition for you and it's that you'd see the glory of God. That's his agenda for your life. And so Jesus reveals that there is a greater hour and we need to see that Jesus is crystal clear what he came to do. Oh, that we might see the glory of that hour. But his mother still has a sense that something's going to happen. Verse 5, he says to the servant, his mother said to the servant, do whatever he tells you. And that brings us to our second thing. The greater hour, the greater cleansing. This miracle points beyond itself to a greater cleansing. In verse 6, uh, John suddenly gets all interested in home furnishings. Do you notice? It's like we're looking around the room. Oh, there are six, uh, six rather nice ceremonial uh, water jars. They're attractive, dating from the Roman era. The kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. There's quite a lot of detail about the jars, right? And we may, you know, some of us may have jars in our homes. You may have ornamental jars. You can get them in TK Maxx, very attractive. You may have them standing around, probably not. Most of our flats are far too small, things like that. Get out the clutter, (laughs) only what's absolutely necessary. And yet the interesting thing for the Jews is that these were not decorative. These jars stood in the corner of the room and every single day preached. They were noisy jars. They sat in the corner of the room and every day they said, you're not clean. You're not clean. You're dirty. And not physically dirty, but ceremonially dirty. Impure, unfit for God, unclean. And the jars were like a constant reminder. You're unclean. You can't approach God. You need to wash your hands. You need to make yourself clean. 
I think we lose this. I think we miss this. If we were Jews, if we'd grown up in the Jewish system of Jesus' day, the idea of being pure, the idea of being clean, would have been a very all-consuming thought in our minds. What you eat, what you touch, where you go, what bodily fluids you've emitted, unclean. Unclean. You see, uncleanness was a massive big issue. And in the Jewish system, you would constantly be aware of, I'm not fit for God, I can't just approach God, and there are these six jars, I need to wash, I need to make myself clean. And there were sacrifices offered in the temples, and then there were stone jars where you could wash yourself and make yourself ceremonially unclean. Like a constant preacher in the corner. I don't think we sense that, most of us. Well, perhaps some of us do. Perhaps some of us do have a constant feeling of our own shame and our own guilt and our own unworthiness before God. Perhaps some of us do feel constantly guilty before God, dirty. We long for something that would make us clean. But the problem with these jars, they're always there. They're never finished with. You never get to smash them and pack them away. You never get to say, right, that's it, finished with you, don't need you anymore. And then Jesus comes in. There's no wine at the wedding feast. He looks around the room, he sees the jars of cleansing. He says, fill those with water. Fill those with water right to the brim. I don't think there's any accident that this is the, these are the vessels that Jesus chooses to fill with water. It's pointing to the fact that in Jesus, there is a cleansing that is coming that is unlike anything you've ever seen before. Now, I don't know if this is true. You can take this if you like. Just, it's a thought. There are six of them. Six in the Bible is one short of completion. It stands for the fact that these jars will never be enough to make you clean. They will never completely clean you. And then Jesus comes, he fills them to the brim because he's the one who's come to bring cleansing that is sevenfold cleansing. Seven that is complete and utter and pure and total. He's the one who is going to bring cleansing not just of the outside but of the heart. In the Old Testament, through the prophet Zechariah, God said to his people on that day, I will open a fountain for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their impurity and their iniquity. God says there's going to be a day when there's going to be a fountain of water which is going to make you clean. And Jesus is the one who comes and he dies on the cross. And he washes you clean. In John's Gospel, when Jesus died, they thrust a spear into his side and out of his side came blood and water. The water that washes you clean. He fills the cleansing jars because he's come to bring a greater cleansing. Because when Jesus died on the cross, all the filth 
that is, look, hang on. Remember the jars? Here I come with my filthy hands. When I wash, my filth goes into the water. My filth goes into the water. The water takes it. It becomes dirty. I become clean. That's how cleaning works, right? If I'm dirty, the water's clean. We've got to swap in order for me to get clean. That's got to become dirty. It's just basic. If you end up with clean water, something's gone wrong. At the cross, what happened was Jesus was filled up with all of my filth and my iniquity. He was filled up to the brim with all the stuff that I've done wrong, all the shame, all the things that I've thought and said and done, all the things that you've done, the things that weigh you down, the things that nag at you, the things that preach at you. You're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're not clean. You shouldn't even be in church this afternoon if people knew what you'd done. All of that transferred to Jesus at the cross where he dies to bring cleansing. Oh, what beautiful cleansing. And on that day, God opened a fountain that all impurity and iniquity could be washed away. The six stone jars filled to the brim point beyond themselves to a greater cleansing that you might believe. Put your trust in this one. People spend Years of their lives, trying to make themselves clean, trying to scrub their lives, trying to sort it out, trying to get rid of the guilt that they feel. And Jesus says, I'll do it for you. I'll wash you. Right now, I'll wash you. There's a greater cleansing. And the greater cleansing then leads to a greater banquet. Let's have a look at how the story goes on. <clears throat> the greater cleansing leads to a greater banquet. Verse 8. Then Jesus told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. I mean, that was pretty. These servants, they're quite heroic in this story, really. They believe. You want us to take some of the water out of the washing jars to the master of the banquet. He's not going to be happy about that. Just take it. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. He doesn't know. So the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Whose responsibility was it at the banquet to make sure the wine didn't run out? Whose job was it? You don't have to know anything about Jewish wedding ceremonies. It's all here in the text. Everything we need to know is here. It was the bridegroom's job. The master of ceremonies, the master of the banquet says to the bridegroom, Hey, look at you, hey, bringing out the best wine last. The bridegroom's responsibility was to provide the wine. When the wine ran out, the bridegroom failed. Right, here's my question. What is Jesus doing? Who is Jesus becoming? What is he stepping into? Do you see that Jesus is stepping into the place of the bridegroom? 
Jesus is stepping into the place of the one who provides the wine. Now, you may say to me, that sounds a bit fanciful. How on earth do you know that? We'll flick over one page in your Bibles. We'll do this in a couple of weeks, but here's a trailer. John the, we're back to John the Baptist again in a couple of weeks. To this, John the Baptist replied, this is verse 27, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the one who comes to bring the new wine. Jesus is the one who comes to supply a wine that will never run out. The human bridegroom failed, just like all human bridegrooms fail. All sources of human wine run out. All sources of human joy run out. The show is great while it lasts, but it's gone in the morning. There's nothing there. It distracts us for a moment, but it leaves you feeling empty. Here is the bridegroom who says, I have wine that will never run out. I have wine that will satisfy you forever. I have wine that is new wine. The best wine. Aged wine, the best. I'm going to show you some words from Isaiah 25. I want you to look at these words and I want you to think, what is Jesus doing at this wedding? What is the sign pointing to? Let's have these words. Let me just read these for you. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. God said that there was a day coming when there would be a banquet. A banquet like you've never ever experienced before. A banquet that brings all sorrow and sadness and death to an end. When you taste that banquet, you know the suffering is finished. You know the suffering is over. When you taste that banquet, you know that all your tears and all your shame and all your failure and all your heartache, it's done. And there is now a banquet forever where there are no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. And what Jesus did in Cana of Galilee was said, that's me. I'm the bridegroom. I'm the wine provider. And he gave a little taste. It wasn't the real thing. It wasn't the full thing. It was just a sign. Don't stop at the sign. You've got to follow the sign to the banquet. You've got to follow the sign to the future that he's promised us. You've got to follow the sign to the satisfaction that he alone can bring. 
Here is someone who is not interested in putting on a show. Here is someone who wants to show you his glory. A greater hour when he will die on the cross. A greater cleansing when he will open a fountain to wash you clean. And a greater banquet that he invites you to that you might know him and enjoy him forever. It doesn't get better than that. And that's what John's gospel is about. That's just the first sign. There are six more signs still to come. So as we finish, let me ask you this. Are you feasting on this sign? Are you following this sign? Are you trusting this glory? Or do you find yourself drawn to be distracted and entertained? Do you find yourself wanting something that will just take your mind off things? Take away from reality? Think about your week. How much of your week do you spend gazing at glory? And how much of your week do you spend on trivial nonsense? And you watch this stuff and you enjoy this stuff and it lasts for a brief moment, but you end up at the, at the end of it just feeling, what a waste of, what a waste of time that was. Let's be hungry for glory. Think about this for us as a church. As a church family, let's not be a church that is interested in being a show. We're not trying to put on a show every Sunday. This is not a show. This is not a performance. We don't come so that we can try and have some experience together where we all go, clap, 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 that was great, and we all go home and it's changed nothing. It could be tempting to want church to be like that. It could, be, it could be tempting to want church to be shiny and flashy and impressive. Now, I think it is important that we do things well. And I think it is important that we honour God in the way that we do our music and that we sing. But the goal is that we might see his glory. Not that we might be impressed by musicians or preachers or singers or whatever it might be, but that we might see his glory. Let's not seek a performer. Let's seek out those who will point us to Christ. And maybe you're still looking for a church and you're still going around working out which church you're going to join. I don't care which church you join. As long as you join a church that is going to point you to Christ, whether that's Globe Church or another church, I don't mind as long as it's a church that is not about show but about Christ. That is about glory that is about reality. So this afternoon, I, I hope this sort of it gets us excited about Jesus, gets us encouraged, and gets us ready to go out into this week and say, Jesus, I, I want to see your glory. And perhaps even this week, you could resolve to spend a little bit less time on distraction and a little bit more time on glory reading this book, just reading John's Gospel. If you don't know where to start, just read John's Gospel. Here you're reading glory. Watching donkeys eat marmite shrivels your soul. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we confess that we live 
in a world and in a culture that loves to be entertained. Lord, we love to be entertained. We love to be distracted. But Father, we thank you that Jesus didn't come to entertain. He came to reveal the greatest truth that there is, the greatest glory that there is. Lord, we pray this afternoon that we might follow the sign, see the glory, and build our lives here. Lean everything on this. Trust everything to this one. And we ask it in his name. Amen.